You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast, and on today's episode, after learning that Canada failed to get a seat on the UN Security Council, we talked to Carleton University Associate Professor Stephanie Carvin for her perspective on what this means and what could come next. Stanley Park could be returning to normal this weekend if the Park Board approves that at their meeting tonight. Park business owners have been vocal about how they want vehicles back. They're even taking legal action. And the emergency response benefit has cost about $44 billion so far. The extension means the number will go up and up. We find out how all of this deficit spending is impacting the global lending industry and how the government plans to dig the country out of debt. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. I will go back to the UN and be as enthusiastic and as passionate about the role of Canada and the role of the UN in the world. We need the UN more than ever in the world. That was Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Marc-Andre Blanchard, yesterday after learning Canada failed to get a seat on the UN Security Council. Let's bring in Carleton University Associate Professor Stephanie Carvin for her perspective on what this means and the road moving forward. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. What's your response to the loss of, of the uh, not getting the seat yesterday? Uh, it wasn't that surprising. Uh, there had been some last-minute scrambling by the government uh, over the last six months. Certainly, it's something that uh, the foreign minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, had spent a lot of time working on. And I had heard, you know, from some diplomats in Ottawa that they thought Canada might have pulled it off. But clearly, that was not the case. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Canada has basically, you know, we like to think of ourselves as this kind of, international facing country but the reality is we haven't really had a a strong foreign policy in decades and our global presence has been shrinking we have uh cut our foreign aid we have shut down embassies and this is kind of the result of that um you know clearly the international community does not feel canada deserves to be at the table so what do you think went wrong in the campaigning because here on the one hand we had a prime minister who was touting the phrase canada is back uh, for five years plus spending millions of dollars trying to get this seat. What was the the big mistake or mistakes, do you think, in that campaign? Um, I think there's a number of things, some of which were definitely uh, the government's fault and some of them which weren't. Uh, So let's start with what wasn't their fault. Uh, That was really the fact that I think the Trump administration has sucked all the oxygen out of the room. Um, Our kind of foreign policy focus has really just been that of survival. Uh, We have put our best and brightest minds to surviving uh, NAFTA, whatever new NAFTA is. I think it's the USMCA uh, or Kuzma, as we like to call it. Uh, So that uh, basically, uh, you know, we've put our best and brightest minds towards that. And other areas of our foreign policy have suffered as a result. Uh, We have also not put, uh, again, you know, when you say Canada is back, what does that mean? I, you know, I was comparing it the other day, as soon as they allowed us to here in Ontario visit our family, I went to stay with my family and I was back in my room. <laughs> I was back with my family doesn't mean I was doing anything. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it was a kind of meaningless phrase that uh, I think has kind of come to haunt the government. So, and I think really the third thing is that the government never articulated, I think, either domestically or internationally a rationale for why we should have the seat. It really didn't explain what Canada was going to do. It kind of gave some lip service to the idea of of promoting women and the environment and, and stuff like this. But there was never really 
any sense of purpose. And I think that wasn't communicated well internationally, and it definitely wasn't uh, communicated well domestically. And and really, it just it, the whole thing just fell apart in, in a very uh, unfortunate way. And I'm, I know I'm asking you to kind of uh, look into a crystal ball here, but what do you think the conversations were then? Like you said, they never it was never really defined. What does that mean? Canada's back. So here we have the prime minister who's making dozens of phone calls with all of these leaders. What do you think he was talking about on the phone? I think he was trying to make a case um, and talking about how Canada wants to engage more, how it wants to do more things. And, and you know, that's great, but that's what he should have been doing in 2015, not 2020. And uh, that clearly wasn't happening. Um, there, was, there really wasn't any uh, sense. You know, the thing is, when, you, when you're applying for these seats, you can't just come in at the last minute. And, and to a certain extent, coming in, uh, 2015, 2016 is actually considered the last minute for these kinds of votes. You need to basically plan uh, almost a decade in advance to run a campaign like this. So both Ireland and Norway had already announced their uh, their candidacy, had already announced the fact that, you know, and had already gotten a number of countries to pledge their support in advance, even before we entered the race. So, I mean, this is, this is how late we were. So it didn't really matter that we were making these phone calls. But also, you're dealing with a prime minister who... You know, for all of this talk of changing Canadian foreign policy and re-engagement in the world has not delivered on that front really at all. Uh, our embassies remain closed. Uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, Christia Freeland visited Africa at all during her time and Africa votes in these elections. So uh, this is, again, unfortunately, the consequence of, of kind of us ignoring foreign policy thinking that, you know, oh, everyone likes Canada, Canada, you know, why wouldn't they vote for us? But you know, we're we're kind of um, we're we're a little stale. Yeah, being polite doesn't isn't enough to get you uh, all the seats or to get you everything you want. Do you think the prime minister p- played too much or relied too heavily on simply the idea that here I am, this progressive leader, I'm not Stephen Harper? Well, in, for the lack of any other rationale for the seat, you kind of have to suspect that was the reason. I think there was this idea that, you know, Canada is an inherently internationalist, uh, liberal country that is going to go out there and do, and do progressive things. And we have a track record of doing, and, and this is true, we do have a very good track record of, of making very good contributions internationally. But that was, you no. Know, I mean, like, honestly, it's like, I, I, look, I look at this for a living. And if you ask me what the rationale was for us having a seat on the UN Security Council, I couldn't tell you what it was, other than the fact that the, that the Liberals put it in their campaign promise in 2015. And even then, they didn't articulate a rationale for it. So, it, honestly, it's really hard to see this as anything other than a, you know, I'll use a big word here, vainglorious exercise by the government to be like, hey, look, we delivered where Stephen Harper couldn't. And then to lose worse than Stephen Harper did uh, is is nothing short of pretty embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, that's what we get. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, the fact is, look, I want to be clear. There's, there's, a lot, there's been a lot of skepticism of the UN recently, particularly on social media, accusing it of all kinds of things that it's not really up to. This institution and inter-global international institutions are under attack generally. And, but, and there's worth to us being there, and there's worth to having these seats. But you don't just get them for, for having good hair. You get them because you uh, offer something, because you, know, you get them because people recognize that you've been there, that you've been doing things for a number of years that, that help make the world a better place. And frankly, we haven't done that. Um, and, and, that's, and that's the reality of, of this situation is that 
you know, the government really could have used this as an opportunity to to rethink Canadian foreign policy, which is something, frankly, it should have done in 2015, 2016. And it should have been working towards certain concrete goals. And most importantly, explaining to Canadians why all of this is important. Because I think a lot of people just, they're like, you know, my parents, they didn't know that we were even going up for a vote until this morning. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an important thing, and we're just not doing it. All right, Stephanie, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. That is Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Donald Trump tweeted 42 minutes ago, Bolton's book, which is getting terrible reviews, is a compilation of lies and made up stories all intended to make me look bad. Many of the ridiculous statements he attributes to me were never made. Pure fiction, just trying to get even for firing him. That from President Donald J. Trump. And as you've likely heard in the news, tensions escalating between China and the United States as President Trump is facing those allegations that he asked President Xi Jinping for his help in a bid for re-election. Let's check in with Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini for his take on this. Reggie, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Uh, There's a lot changing and uh, a lot happening on this story. Where do things stand right now? Well, I mean, let's go with what you had just said right off the top there, where the president's tweet talks about this being pure fiction uh, and a series of lies. It's important to remember last night, the Department of Justice actively filed an injunction to stop this book from being uh, released publicly because it contains classified information. So either it contains classified information or it's lies. This is the president kind of backing himself into a corner right now. uh, And it really is uh, escalating this tension inside the White House. The president furious with the leaks, furious with John Bolton and furious about these uh, kind of new allegations about his relationships with dictators. Because if it's classified information, it's not lies. Exactly. If it's a classified conversation, then it's actually factual. And the president fears that it's going to make him look bad because it did actually happen, which is why the Department of Justice's move to uh, block this from coming out, claiming it to be classified, puts the president in a position where he either has to come out and say that he lied or the conversation actually did take place. Uh, so what happens now in that? There have also been a lot of questions about why John Bolton put this in a book and released it. Why, if, if this happened and he knew about this, why he didn't raise uh, raise the raise it and bring attention to it sooner? Well, I mean, and this, these are questions that have been going on for six months now, considering that he made no attempts to uh, testify during the House impeachment trial, nor during the Senate impeachment trial earlier, uh, late last year, uh, and with the ongoing uh, impeachment uh, stuff that was going on earlier this year. Um, and, and there have been criticisms from uh, people on both sides uh, saying that if he really wanted to talk, he should have come, he should have done that under oath. But uh, Bolton had made no uh, kind of hiding about the fact that he wasn't all for the impeachment to begin with. He said it was too narrow focused. He said it was too partisan. Uh, and if he was going to testify, it would have to be under subpoena, which never happened, uh, saying that the Democrats really simply just rushed it too quickly. So if they would have taken their time, he would have come out to speak earlier. You know, it's not satisfying a lot of Democrats, but also this information that Bolton is, is talking about, a lot of this has also been out there for, for a couple of months now. Uh, and there, there is a lot of reaction, not only to this allegation or this revelation that uh, President Trump wanted his Chinese counterpart to help him win the next election, but Bolton has also uh, written that Trump also kind of encouraged the mass detention camps for Uyghur Muslims. 
Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's a lot to to unpack when it comes to this relationship with China that is inside this book, according to Bolton, where, you know, the president did want to help him get those farm state votes by having China buy up agricultural products. Uh, the president also, uh, you know, uh, um, put a, a statement out last night, which was interesting timing uh, about the Uyghur situation, saying that there should be freedoms for them, saying that what's happening in China is incorrect, given the fact that what we heard from Bolton's book is that the president said that this is what they essentially deserved is what China China was doing to them. Uh, we also heard from the president uh, from the book that the president uh, wanted a constitutional change to potentially allow him to be in office longer to deal with China, feeling that he's the only one who could uh, who could handle uh, uh, President Xi. You know, there's a lot of questions here as to what the president was actually thinking with these dictators, but there are also uh, questions and concerns about his conversations with Turkey's leader, his conversations with Russia's uh, Vladimir Putin, that are really putting a new spotlight on how the president deals with dictators and whether or not he's doing. Doing things for personal gain. Uh, so at this point, what do we see happening? The legal battle has been ongoing. Uh, there's now a push to stop the book from being released next week. Do you think it will be released? It- it's, it's hard to see how that can happen. The publisher last night said that this book not only is already uh, in mass kind of shipment right now around the United States, but it's also in mass shipment around the world. It would be nearly impossible to have the Justice Department stop every country from putting this book onto the shelves. It's also worth noting here that last night's injunction from the Department of Justice comes about six months after the White House was actually given a copy of this manuscript to be able to go through and have both White House officials and national security officials dig through the information to see if there was was classified information and they waited till you know what's what, what's accounting to an 11th hour here to try and deal with this it's very unlikely that by next tuesday any bookstore is going to stop themselves from putting this book on a shelf all right reggie we'll leave it there always good to talk to you thank you so much thank you that's reggie Cicchini, global news washington correspondent this is mornings with simi Well, if you've been following along with the back and forth about the Stanley Park Drive, you'll know there is a huge difference of opinion, depending on who you ask, about whether or not the Park Drive should be reopened to traffic the way it was before the traffic calming was brought in for the pandemic, or perhaps moving forward with more measures to restrict traffic. Well, business owners in the park have been very vocal. They want traffic back, saying that not having cars accessing the park has been very bad as they try to reopen. Well, Nigel Malkin is a spokesperson for the Stanley Park Stakeholders and joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Nigel, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, You represent several or talking for several of the businesses in the park. As we start to reopen businesses and get things back in some kind of operation, how has it been for businesses in Stanley Park? Well, for most of them, there is no business. Uh, with the uh, Park Drive being closed, uh, certainly the uh, Prospect Point restaurant is completely out of business. It's uh, inaccessible to anyone. Uh, the tea house hasn't bothered, and uh, the aquarium is being closed. And basically, there's just not enough business to justify opening their doors. Uh, do you have any idea how many jobs we're talking about? Uh, I believe the number came up as about 870 jobs uh, directly related to the uh, between the aquarium, the restaurants, uh, the horse uh, horse buggy, and and of course there's many 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 other things as well that would go along with that. But the direct number was eight eight seventy, I believe. Uh, what are your thoughts on this idea of perhaps moving to a one lane model and keeping one lane, making it a dedicated bike lane, and only reopening one lane to traffic? Well, the first thing is, there is already a bike lane that goes around Stanley Park, 
and it's probably one of the most beautiful bike lanes in the entire world, and it goes along the seawall. There's also a bike lane that goes through the center of the park that goes along the causeway, which is, uh, is there for commuters. So this is unnecessary. One section of the uh, road that we're talking about has a seven-degree climb to it. And unless you are a well-seasoned cyclist or an elite cyclist, you'll never make it up the hill. So this is not for families and kids. It, it, it's not to go and make this a green and wonderful initialist, uh, initiative. This is to make the Stanley Park a velodrome for extreme cyclists and ha- has no way that uh, any regular cyclist would make that one climb alone. So they'll be walking at the side of the road, pushing their bike up the hill at best. Uh, we heard from, I think it was a bit unexpected and more opinion, not based on science, but Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, put forward her opinion saying that she thought it was a good idea because it encourages people to take transit or to get out and exercise rather than drive. What's your response to her comments on this? Well, if you take transit, you're going to have a higher risk of getting COVID to begin with. Uh, secondly, we need to go and have people getting outside. This is a very non-inclusive thing to go and close down this road because you're going to end up making it so it's more difficult, if not impossible, for families to go and take their children to the aquarium, to get them to the beaches, to get them to the model train, just to get them outside. Uh, myself, my family, the aquarium was basically something you did on a Sunday or a Saturday. And it was a constant thing. And uh, piling three kids onto a number of buses and everything else just wasn't going to be viable. Uh, there have also uh, been some uh, some debate on this and people saying that they really feel like the park board has taken this on and, and made some decisions and is moving forward without proper public consultation. What are your thoughts on that? Well, when you've already ordered 2,500 concrete blocks and you already have architectural drawings that remove all the parking from the Prospect Cafe and from um, a number of them from the Tea House, uh, I'm going to say they probably overreached their bounds, wouldn't you? Uh, it does seem like it's moved very fast, and I think they were given a bit of leeway in the beginning at the beginning of the pandemic when huge decisions were being made. But now I think is when people are looking at this saying, well, wait a minute, we didn't give you carte blanche just to go ahead and make these changes. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's completely reckless. The, the park should be for everyone, and it certainly shouldn't be a velodrome for extreme, extreme cyclists. Uh, it should be there for everybody. And uh, I know for one that, that even friends of mine who are pretty decent cyclists, they, they would have difficulty going up that one seven-degree grade. So it, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. As it is, Stanley Park has 12 million visitors per year, and you've got to remember that at least half of uh, probably three-quarters of that is in sunny days. So on those sunny days, the, having a single lane going into Stanley Park isn't going to work. It, uh, I mean, just you could do the numbers. It's not going to work. And there's also big events like the, the uh, um, uh, events that go on in Malkin Bowl and other things that are there where you need a large number of people to get in and out of the park in a, in a relatively decent amount of time. And again, how are you going to do it with one lane, and uh, especially if the horse and buggy's in front of you or a tour bus is, is uh, explaining the North Shore and Stanley Park and going along at 5 or 10 kilometers an hour, uh, the, the lineup of traffic with their engines idling, polluting, will be endless. 
Yeah, it is kind of hard to imagine when we get back to the place where the ghost train and the Christmas train and the Malcolm Bowl concerts and everything is taking place again and the restaurants are open, which we will get back to at some point. It is very difficult to imagine how that could happen with such restrictions on people accessing and getting into the park. Absolutely. And I'll tell you one thing, rather like every other bike lane that's gone on in the city of Vancouver, you throw those concrete blocks down, they're not going anywhere. And the plan is to have them in sometime around Canada Day. So you've got two weeks to go and talk to people, talk to the parks board, talk to council, uh, talk to your friends and make sure you sign our petition and stop uh, these bike lanes going in. Because the concrete blocks, once they're in, that's the end of the game. Are you contemplating any type of legal action or lawsuits by uh, the businesses if this does go ahead? Uh, there's legal action under, being undertaken at this point in time. Uh, I won't say, but we have a very prominent uh, British Columbia former attorney, attorney general that will probably be filing papers before the Parks Board meeting today. All right. Nigel Malkin is uh, representing business owners in Stanley Park. This is Mornings with Simi. Vous avez changé votre position sur ces enjeux. On avait un premier ministre qui avait beaucoup d'erreurs. Il était un acteur prêt. comme... All right, that was just a bit from the first leadership debate for the Conservative Party of Canada. It was held last night. Only two of the four candidates speak French fluently. The English debate tonight is expected to be more heated, we could say. Let's bring in Conservative commentator Elise Mills for her analysis of last night's debate and what we might expect later today. Elise, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, so what is your take? It was uh, an interesting one, to say the least, uh, last night. Uh-huh. Well, I see. So it, for me, it runs down under the umbrella of four key issues that that were glaring at me. Number one, technical difficulties. Number two, the issue of French. Number three, the issues that were debated. And number four, with an asterisk, the lens that we were watching this debate through, which was after yesterday's news that we had lost the Security Council seat with even less votes than we did in 2010 with Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Harper and the issues that had plagued us throughout that campaign. So that's how I was looking at it. Uh, let's talk, or, or talk about the issue of French. So two of the candidates, uh, as we just heard there, uh, Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay, able to have that discussion, to have that back and forth in French. The other two candidates, not really great. Uh, both had said they've been trying to learn French, have been studying, uh, but not really at the level where they could have a debate. So do you think we really, does the public or do members get, is there, is there a, a purpose then for having this type of debate in French? Well, if the purpose is to, every political party needs to have a debate uh, that's focused on Quebec issues, and it's obviously going to be in French. The, the goal of that is to strengthen your support in the province and to demonstrate a, uh, a, a connection and an understanding with the province. So if you look at it through that lens, even though Mr. McKay and Mr. O'Toole's French was come see, come saws, I would say. And my French is terrible since I've left Ottawa. But I will say that I was very surprised that two men that had very high-profile cabinet positions 
didn't have the type of French that I was expecting, which would be what I would see Jean Charest or former Prime Minister Mulroney or even Mr. Harper. And Mr. Harper's French was impeccable. And I think if we're looking at if we're going to make gains with either of those two gentlemen, I think we need to lower the bar to where we are right now, which is having 10 seats. If we're looking at wanting to get to where we were in 2011 when we had that supermajority, I think everybody's kidding themselves because unless these two men step it up, uh, we're going to have a very difficult time. I also think it's not even just about language, but starting before that, getting into petty social conservative spats, are you against abortion? Are you for abortion? Really what they were saying to me last night was, are you for human rights? Are you for women's health? Conservatism that I grew up with, Jill, and we, you and I have spoken about this a few times, this doesn't reflect that. There was no vision. It was simply about, it was the dog whistle type politics. And it's actually the very issue that Mr. Blanchette, the leader of the Bloc Quebecois, is being drilled on today because Mr. Singh, the leader of the NDP, has made an accusation of racism. That is particularly an issue that is sensitive to Quebec. And so, if anything, the conservative debate last night highlighted uh, how deeply con- socially conservative key parts of Quebec actually are. When you talk to about these kind of barbs about the social conservatives versus progressive conservatives, I mean, is that even helpful either? It does seem like there are some members of this party that are so focused on abortion when people would just like them to move on and talk about something else. Well, this brings me to my fourth point that had a little asterisk behind it because... So yesterday was a big foreign policy day. And as you may know, Jill, I've uh, my whole week has really been focused in on how Canada's lackluster position on the world stage has had dr- drastic and quite horrific effects on the rights of Canadians that hold dual passports. I think of the Iranian Canadians who, they lo- who lost uh, many family members in that Ukraine flight uh, in January, for example. I think about the gentleman that's still being held in Egypt. Um, and so there they were, getting into what I call, and, and yes, it is regional to some degree, but I think when Canadians hear that conservatives are having regional spats, they think it's West versus everyone else. But I think, if anything, this leadership has demonstrated that the root problem of those who are on the extreme side of, of several social issues really are not confined to one postal code. And if anything, all of these leadership candidates are all uh, pandering to the social conservatives and to, I think, somewhat of a, a dangerous tone that has emerged in the party. All are from Toronto. All are from Ontario. So <clears throat> it's definitely not a Western issue. We actually have a big picture issue. And I think of all the international issues and foreign policy issues that Canada has put to the side and needs to address. And I think of the party under Mr. Harper, Mr. Mulroney, a party that I felt quite akin to that had big ideas around what Canada wanted to be on the stage, what we wanted Canada to be. And the, you know, Mr. Trudeau's talk around being peacekeepers, we know that's not true. If anything, we have a quite a dismal record on our investment there. We have a dismal record on, on finding solutions and justice around some of the most horrific crimes against 
human rights. Uh, we don't walk our talk, and the UN Security Council members told us that yesterday. Uh, they did, indeed. Uh, just before I let you go, the English debate tonight, the two other candidates that really don't get talked about all that much, uh, Toronto lawyer Leslie Lewis and Derek Sloan, uh, do you think we'll hear more from them, or there, will there be more of a spotlight on the other candidates? Yes, and I'm excited to hear from Leslie Lewis. The only issue, and it's funny because I'm quite interested in her, but where we differ is that she doesn't support the equal rights for Canadians. She's got little asterisks beside human rights, and I can't get behind that. Um, but maybe she will come out and demonstrate uh, that she has taken a different approach. I don't know. But I'm looking forward to a, a sort of a vigorous debate today because they'll be very comfortable in their English language. And it'll be interesting to see, interesting to see how Mr. O'Toole and Mr. McKay uh, spar with each other in their, uh, in their, not, in their original language because uh, last night uh, they obviously had some solid prepared talking points. But I find it interesting that the only big policy that they could kind of debate with one one another was who did a better or who did a worse job getting the F-35 jets uh, uh, deal done. You know, it was kind of ridiculous, Jill. Well, I think people have uh, higher hopes for the English debate. Uh, at least I, I, I think. I think that that uh, I'm many hanging would agree. on as a conservative, Jill. I'm like, give me something that makes me think. You know, <laughs> challenge me. <laughs> All right. Well, we will talk to you again. I'm sure about uh, the race. Thanks so much for your yes. time this morning. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. You too. That is Elise Mills, a conservative commentator. That debate uh, starts at four o'clock this afternoon. Are you going to watch the conservative leadership debate? Who do you think would be the best leader, the best person to go up against Justin Trudeau? This is Mornings with Simi. The federal government has extended the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, for another two months. The benefit provides $2,000 per month to Canadians who lost work or cannot work due to the pandemic. It was initially available for a maximum of 16 weeks, paying a total of $8,000. That is Global National News anchor Donna Friesen. The emergency response benefit has cost about $44 billion so far. And the extension means that number is going to continue going up. So let's bring in Werner Antweiler, an expert on economic policy at UBC, joining us now to talk about the spending that we've seen during during this global pandemic and what that means for the future financial picture of Canada. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. What are your thoughts? I mean, the numbers are just so big. It's hard to even wrap one's head around the idea that in the, the parliamentary budget officer's newest report saying that this year's federal deficit could hit $256 billion is just such a large number to even try and comprehend. Yes, these numbers are staggeringly large. We have not seen a fiscal deficit that large uh, ever, uh, and uh, that is best expressed in a percentage share of our GDP. And uh, this um, $250 deficit is roughly 12% of our gross annual output of our country. So this is uh, really unprecedented, and of course, uh, that raises big questions for the future, too. How can we afford this? Who can afford this? The federal government probably can. The provincial government, when they borrow, they face uh, much uh, bigger constraints because they have already a high level of debt to start with. So this is actually raising very important questions for our future. Uh, How do you even begin to tackle that then, looking at uh, these numbers that we've never seen before? Uh, Is there a kind of a game plan then moving forward? Well, um, we are very fortunate to start out with a relatively low level of 
uh, fiscal uh, debt uh, at the federal level. So uh, we had uh, in the 1990s a very high level of debt. Then successive governments actually brought it down to roughly 30 percent of GDP. So now that we're adding another um, 12, 13 percent of uh, of debt to that, we're still at a very manageable level. So I I don't see any reason to panic, but uh, it means that in the future we have to look at running. Uh, structural um, uh, fiscal surpluses so that basically we're not really adding more to that debt, but we ensure it will come down gradually over many years. Uh, uh, but that requires that we have to think about uh, where we um, bring in a new revenue uh, eventually when the economy has recovered and um, where we can uh, economize on expenditures. And so this is, of course, the, the tough decisions that governments have to make uh, next year and the year after when the economy rebounds. How much of it does depend as well, when we're talking about borrowing these huge amounts of money, how much is dependent on the recovery uh, being that interest rates stay low? Yes, uh, interest rates are um, going to stay low because the uh, Bank of Canada will make sure that uh, there is enough liquidity in the system. Uh, what we're worried about more is uh, essentially not inflation, but deflation, that actually prices are going to fall and, and that actually can have a really uh, deleterious effect to the economy. When, uh, when prices are, are, are getting lower, uh, people are hanging on to the money, they're not spending it, and uh, that is uh, very, very problematic. We've actually had uh, some negative numbers uh, in, in March and April where uh, prices actually have gone down. Um, it looks like for the year, um, once the economy is getting uh, a better footing, uh, we should be back into more normal territory. Uh, but the Bank of Canada will make sure that we're not ending up in a deflationary spiral. So I'm not uh, worried about interest rates for quite some time. They will stay low. Um, that should give businesses a signal that uh, if they borrow, it will be at very low rates. And also at the federal level, if we borrow money now, it is at historically low interest rates. Uh, the bond market gives us uh, uh, the opportunity to, to borrow for long uh, times and not be saddled with uh, excessively high um, debt service load uh, in the next uh, number of years. Uh, is it strange to be saying things as well in this report saying that the overall deficit figure is only $3.8 billion higher than what we thought Yves Giraud's or what his uh, Yves Giraud's previous predictions were uh, when we're talking? I mean, that seems like a high number, too, that we're saying it's only $3.8 billion higher. <laughs> yes. Uh, when we look at uh, a typical deficit in a normal year, any government that would say, oh, we're $3 billion unsure, they would get... Uh, uh, a lot of criticism in uh, in Parliament, uh, but now we're in a situation where uh, we just don't know. There's so much uncertainty in the economy that uh, even even this number is probably an underestimate of the the level of uncertainty. We don't know the uptake of some of the programs uh, as it will continue. We don't know how fast the economy will rebound. We don't know if there's going to be a second wave. So all these uh, factors uh, make any prediction uh, pretty unreliable. So. Even if you say it's uh, off by $3 billion, well, I, I wouldn't put my money on that one. Uh, it could be off by $10 billion either way, and it would still be possible. Hmm. Uh, we've also been talking a lot about the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB. Uh, that's the $2,000 a month payment. As the budget office now saying that is going to cost about $61 billion, uh, but there will be some recovery in taxes. So what are your thoughts on the fact that we now know that is going to be extended? Yes, yeah, so it, it was uh, um, basically uh, a recognition that some sectors of the economy are still stuck and are not recovering as, uh, as fast as others. And so extending the program makes sense, uh, but we also have to think very clearly about the eligibility criteria So make sure, to make sure that people aren't staying on this program uh, beyond uh, the time when it's necessary um, and that there's basically incentive for people to return to work where it's safe. 
Um, the, the problem is that some sectors like uh, tourism, uh, airlines, and, and some of those are, are still going to be down for quite some time throughout the summer. Um, and um, so these sectors will require some uh, continued assistance uh, because otherwise we face uh, this bankruptcies and, uh, and a lot of economic uh, displacement. So this is uh, probably the right call to make uh, to continue the program. Uh, but uh, we also have to think really hard about uh, uh, how to tighten some of the eligibility criteria to make sure that the, the programs actually have a, a clear perspective to be phased out uh, and, and uh, leading into a transition back to work uh, for uh, the companies that are receiving the, the wage subsidy and for employees uh, who are receiving the, uh, the emergency response benefit. All right. So we will leave it there. Professor Antweiler, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. All right, Werner Antweiler, a UBC associate professor at the Souter School of Business, also an economics policy expert.